Willie Huber, who died late last year, age 97. And the two central facts about Huber's life are, one, the thing that people say he's most well known for, that he founded the Mount Hutt Ski Field. And the second one, one that's been the topic of more conversation in recent years, that he was an unrepentant Nazi who served in the Waffen-SS. So, for years, the coverage of Huber's life pretty much went in that order. Skiing first, his involvement with with the Nazis second. And the most egregious example of that sort of strange sequencing came in 2017, when TVNZ's Sunday program described Huber as a hometown hero before lightly touching on his work for Hitler. And it still continued after Huber's death last year. His obituary for Stuff described him first as a skiing pioneer, and then it sort of detailed the fact that he'd risen to the rank of captain in the Nazi army and won an Iron Cross for his service in the Waffen-SS. And if you don't know the SS, it's one known as one of the most fanatical Nazi divisions. And this always seemed to me, and to many others, to be a case of skewed priorities. Uh, while Huber's work on Mount Hutt is notable, he did genuinely good things for the community. That fact pales in comparison to the question of what role he played in the world's worst ever genocide. And so... Thankfully, one media organisation, North and South, has attempted to correct the ledger in its most recent issue, uh, the new North and South issue, the front page story, the headline story, the main story is headlined, The Nazi Who Founded Mount Hutt. And who did the story? It's by the military historian Andrew MacDonald, uh, and he's a journalist as well, obviously, and Naomi Arnold, who's... uh, freelance feature writer who's about to start at RNZ's in-depth team. So what did they find out about what Huber did during World War II? Yeah, this has been the thing that's been missing from all of these stories because all you had was Huber's account, really. He would just say, oh, I, I, I was barely involved and I knew about the Holocaust at the end of the, end of the war. That was a about it. That was the only inkling I had. But Andrew McDonald was able to source his military records. And so they found out, he found out that he was a gunner on a tank in the Das Reich unit. And they traced uh, his path in that unit over the last years of the war. So what did they find out about where he'd been? So we're done. There's no... I think Andrew McDonald described as a smoking gun here. There's nothing that just links Huber to any of the notorious mass murders or atrocities committed in uh, the Holocaust. But it does link him to a bunch of areas where pretty disturbing stuff has taken place. So the Das Reich unit, they passed through the French town of Toul on the same day that Nazi forces hung 99 townspeople from lampposts in retaliation for an attack on German soldiers. His tank also apparently would have passed within kilometres of an atrocity at uh, the village Ordeur Suglan, where 642 civilians were murdered and the town was raised. So the authors say that he would have seen the smoke from this raised town emanating up uh, on the hillside. And so he has been in these places where mass murders have been uh, carried out and he's seen populations that have been decimated and also the Das Reich unit has this reputation for committing sort of brutal reprisals against civilian populations it perceived as rising up against the Nazis. So all of this, none of it says that he definitely saw or did anything but it does sort of start to strain credulity that he just was totally unaware of these atrocities that were being committed. So how did he get into New Zealand after this? Was it easy? 
Yeah, well... It, I don't know whether it was easy, but it was illegal. <laughs> so the the this is the real thing that Andrew McDonald has been able to prove in this story that Willie Huber lied on his immigration uh, application. So he declared that he was not part of any criminal organisation. That was false. The Allied Tribunal in Nuremberg declared the Waffen SS a criminal organisation in 1946 before he immigrated here. And so that's hard evidence that they have found of some criminal wrongdoing. Even if there's no smoking gun on his war record, it's indisputable that Huber committed immigration fraud. Just off the top of your head, when did he come here? Did he come here straight after the war? I have forgotten this fact. I hoped you wouldn't answer me <laughs> that. No, I yeah, it's it's after nineteen forty six, but I actually can't remember the exact date. So there are also, I believe, some pretty incredible stories about his interactions with some of New Zealand's prominent military veterans. Yeah, Charles Upham, our most decorated military uh, veteran who won a Victoria Cross and Bar. Apparently Huber actually ran into him quite a few times and they drank snaps in a alpine hut in the Southern Alps. Uh, there was uh, an incident that's described in the story. I'll let you read the story. It's, it's sort of spread across something like 20 pages or something. It's very detailed and it's really beautifully written. But uh, this anecdote that's told in the story is of... Huber overhearing some skiers talking excitedly about Charles Upham being in the area and getting kind of incensed and seemingly jealous about this, driving back to his house, picking up his Iron Cross, which is a Nazi uh, war medal, and then driving two hours back and showing his Iron Cross to Charles Upham. Of course, the Iron Cross has a swastika in the middle. So... Yes, really interesting stories. Does the story um, also speculate on some of the reasons why the media coverage in New Zealand in general, society in general, generally glossed over his Nazi service? It does. So the report's uh, authors, I think it might have been Naomi Arnold, I might be wrong on that, but they went to Methven. Uh, where Huber has a bunch of friends. And it seems like, from what they portray, that that most people just saw this very amiable German man that came up to them. And he might have said some stuff about the war, but they basically prioritised their impression of him as as a friendly guy that they liked. And it was almost, I guess, seen as awkward or something to, to inquire deeper this is the implication of it. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's something that I found quite remarkable in the story where it's one of the most stunning pieces of media criticism, amateur media criticism I've ever seen delivered to a journalist. So they are, they, the, these people were complaining to the report's authors that the media kept honing in on Willie Huber's record as a Nazi instead of concentrating on the fact that he had befriended a pair of mice while he was camping on Mount Hutt for founding the ski field there. And I, I think that was an indication of some people's priorities in this. It's sort of an odd thing. As for the media, I, it's it's really hard to say other than that maybe there was maybe there was a pull towards a more uncomplicated story of a hometown hero, this older guy that had sort of diligently founded the ski field. You didn't want to believe that he was necessarily a bad guy and maybe New Zealand's disconnectedness, its physical isolation from the war. We don't see the scars of World War II on the ground here as much. It's not sort of, we don't have that legacy of criminal prosecutions. Maybe that played a role. Uh, yeah, there, there seems to be a, just a general failure to reckon with the 
fact of the bad bits of Huber's life. Even when I talked, when he, this was the last time I raised it, about the obituary and the stuff within the press, uh, I, I talked to um, the editor there and she was just said, look, we wanted to raise all parts of his life, the good bits and the bad bits. The fact is that being <laughs> in the Nazi army and the Waffen SS outweighs anything that he did on Mount Hutt and we have treated uh, that with a lot less gravity than it deserves. So that's uh, six months after his death, and that's in North and South magazine. And uh, that's a little bit of a contrast with another issue of a legacy magazine out this month. Yeah, I I thought it was really interesting seeing this incredibly um, much-needed story coming out in North and South and seeing the different directions that North and South and the listener have gone in. Of course, both of them were Bauer magazines. Bauer shut down, and they arose again under different owners. Uh, The listener has basically just uh, rolled out the exact same magazine, which is, of course, probably quite popular. With, with different TV uh, listings, of yeah, course. Yeah, well, maybe the, the TV <laughs> listings have been... You must be a, a more... <laughs> you must be watching a little bit closer than me. But so I've seen North and South. It's taken this... Believe me, it's I'm taking not. it a, a strong editorial direction in this. But then uh, I just noted that the recent issue of The the Listener has three pages from the cartoonist Tom Scott and his struggle to deal with piles. So it's sort of... Piles. Piles, the medical condition. Three pages. Three pages of that. and I, I Relatable. That would be relatable to a lot a of people. a little bit of a, a illustration of the different directions those two, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the different levels of ambition oh, look, on media operating matters, at those two not media publications matters. at the moment, I thought. Medical matters is what I meant to say. You also wanted to talk about some reporting on vaccines that... Uh, wasn't very inspiring, I think, are the right words. Well, it wasn't quite as inspiring as the North and South. So the media's reporting on the COVID-19 vaccine is incredibly important. It has big implications for New Zealand. The amount of take-up that we have of the vaccine, of course, influences our health response to the pandemic. How many people do get vaccinated will influence when we can open the country back up and how many people get infected with the virus when that actually happens. So most of our media have been pretty careful about their reporting as a result and taking care not to amplify talking points put forward by anti-vax groups, for example. But then on Saturday, One News ran this. Tonight on One News, the deaths of two elderly people who had been given a dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. What we know and the questions still to be answered. So that's Melissa Stokes introducing a report on the deaths of two elderly people. Now the way that was phrased really, I don't know what you think, but it just really strongly suggests that there's at least a heavy dose of suspicion that these deaths were linked to the Pfizer vaccine. And... There's a pretty dicey implication because that does not appear to be the case at all. This is what the reporter Kim Baker-Wilson had to say as soon as the story actually started. Melissa, these are two people believed to be in their 80s and we must be clear tonight, we must stress that at this stage there is no link between the vaccine being given and these deaths. In fact, medical staff are told the Ministry of Health that as far as they're concerned, they aren't related. So what was the criticism of that framing? 
The context is that health authorities are in this real battle to convince people to take the COVID-19 vaccine and they're up against a lot of disinformation and misinformation merchants like Voices for Freedom, which has recently sent out leaflets apparently to up to 2 million households with a whole bunch of debunked claims about the vaccine. And there's also just a lot of misinformation and disinformation floating out there on social media problem that people had with this framing and especially that teaser that I played first is that it really plays into those sorts of narratives it's a real dream headline for them deaths they see those words the keywords people dead vaccine investigation and that is probably or almost certainly according to medical authorities a totally wrong impression to take from that story It's incredibly important for the media not to increase people's fears about the vaccine, but in some ways news values are kind of running against, running counter to that aim, because reporters are generally trained to look out for the remarkable, the unusual. You know, it's the old adage, man bites dog is a story, dog bites man isn't. And so we look for the unusual stuff, and in this case that's probably when things look like they've gone wrong or there might be something wrong with the vaccine, and that gives an actually inaccurate impression that these are not safe when in actual fact millions of people around the world have taken the Pfizer vaccine it's actually just had its safety um, allowances and expanded in the US so that 12 year olds can take it so uh, the reason uh, these two people that died they are already elderly they're taking it because they're at increased risk in the first place and so it's likely that (laughs) that what happened to them is not linked to the vaccine And Hayden, a big story this week uh, was on the public sector pay freeze. Yes, it was. So the the story was that a week ago, Chris Hipkins announced some pay restraint uh, for the three years more of pay restraint. What he termed pay restraint for the public sector, especially for people earning sixty thousand plus. And that quickly provoked a wave of public anger about him taking, you know, taking it to nurses and police officers, and that in turn respond <laughs> triggered a riled up response from the government, which said, "This wasn't a pay freeze. All the headlines are saying it's a pay freeze." Jacinda Ardern said, "The move actually isn't a pay freeze, as, as for example, workers on collective contracts will still be able to move up their pay bands." And Grant Robertson said the terminology was lift for workers lift the salaries for workers earning less than 60000 adjust for workers earning 60000 plus, and hold for workers earning 100000 plus. So much of the media wasn't actually buying that response, and that created some quite funny situations like this one uh, from RNZ's Midday Report. E the Finance Minister defends the pay service pay freeze. It's important to note that this is not, as has been reported, a pay freeze. <laughs> That's Mariana Johnson reading an intro for Midday Report. I love that audio. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the words that confused everybody, I think, was special circumstances. That's right. So uh, the reporters, when this pay restraint was announced for people earning between 60,000 and, 60, and 100,000 in particular, they kept asking, does this mean that these people's uh, pay will, will actually be able to adjust? And Chris Hipkins said, only in special circumstances. And so that's a little bit of a broad term, but it seemed like it was going to be incredibly difficult for that. Uh, those social circumstances to arise. And so Stuff's Henry Cook actually asked, would these pay uh, 
would would you be able to get pay rises that covered cost of living increases? And that was met with a response that uh, from Chris Hopkins that he pointed out that the public services pay had gone up more than the public sectors in recent times. So it, it did seem like the, the government was saying we need to crack down on pay for these people earning between 60000 and 100000 And so the spin-off politics editor, Justin Giovanetti, he actually wrote an article detailing who said what and when about this pay freeze. And he pointed to the Public Service Commission's advice on this government policy, which actually says the default position is that there are to be no increases in I'll say bans means pay bans for lower to middle income earners, and that's between sixty thousand and a hundred thousand. That sounds a lot like a pay freeze. And Justin says to say that it's not a pay freeze is sort of dancing on the head of a pin. So is anyone to blame? Uh, who's to blame for this stuff up? Well, I think when you do have journalists like Justin sort of going through or pulling together all these disparate public statements, like they're trying to track down the Zodiac killer. You've probably made a comm stuff up. And that was pretty much what RNZ's Craig McCulloch said in this episode of The Detail. I don't think that Labour was quite prepared for the outpouring from the public and particularly from the unions. I think it was caught off guard by the fury and how quickly the narrative shifted to be about teachers, about nurses, about police officers. So that's Craig McCulloch talking to uh, RNZ Newsroom's podcast, The Detail. And in his eyes, the government was mainly worried, uh, not by this terminology pay freeze, but because its comms went awry, it had hoped people would see them cracking down on what McCulloch says were pen-pushing bureaucrats, but instead they saw them punishing nurses and teachers and border workers, the people got it, that got us through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and even the most beloved workers of them all, I might know, RNZ journalists. So... Uh, in this case, I, I take it you're being sarcastic. That was about the sarcastic. Letter. Just before anyone does send me a hate, hate mail, that was definitely sarcastic. So I just, in this case, I don't think the government is right. It, it wasn't journalists getting the terminology wrong. It's more that the government didn't like how its message was coming across. And a staffing change at News Talk ZB. Turnover news. Yeah, turnover news. So Phil Gifford uh, has been the co-host, uh, well, Simon Barnett's co-host on the afternoon show over at News Talk ZB for some time, and he is leaving. He'll be replaced by James Daniels, who's actually a current Christchurch councillor. Notable? Yeah, it's... Not him, but the change? Yeah, I'd I'd say it's notable. I I have quite... I th- I think quite fondly of uh, uh, Simon Barnett and Phil Gifford's show, if only because it has a reasonably distinctive tone in the talkback landscape. It's quite kind and positive and respectful, and it takes on tricky sub- subjects without really trying to rile up its listeners. And it, it's it's pretty notable in its field, and and where it's being hosted for that reason. Uh, the second reason this is notable, though, uh, besides me saying good job to Phil, is that News Talk ZB doesn't exactly have the most diverse lineup in the world. So uh, James Daniels is Ngaitahu. He spent 19 years on Turunanga or Ngaitahu, and he is uh, at least going to offer 
a different perspective <laughs> on 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 that station. And especially when you have the station's most popular host, Mike Hosking, in the morning at the moment, railing against Māori wards and echoing some of the National Party talking points about stuff like the Hapuapua report. They always have a long lead-in, though, on ZB, don't they, for their turnovers? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, this is not... This is a pretty long lead. And so, I mean, fair enough, though. James Daniels does have to finish out a few obligations that he has to the Christchurch City Council, that kind of stuff. Uh, The new lineup takes effect on July 13th, so that's a solid couple of months away. But it's nothing compared to the lead-in to Simon Barnett's transfer from More FM to News Talk ZB, which you might remember was announced in 2017 when the transfer was only 545 days away. The spin-off actually put together a countdown timer on that full 545 days. (laughs) 